Welcome to Season Watch with Wendy Scott, where we observe the things coming on the earth through biblical binoculars, because the Bible is both timely and timeless. With her master's degree in rhetoric and writing skills, Wendy is a part-time college professor, but a full-time truth professor. She believes the Word of God is His perfect revelation, including a young earth six-day creation, as well as the global flood inundation, and that Israel is God's chosen nation. Faith alone in Jesus is salvation, the true church rapture comes pre-tribulation, followed by Christ's millennial domination and his eternal kingdom with earth's regeneration. Jesus is coming without hesitation. And now, here's Wendy with today's topic. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining me again with Season Watch. And we just want to start with prayer on this special Easter week. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your great sacrifice, for laying down your life for us. Help us to understand the depth of your gift and the promises that you have for us. Let us walk fully in all that you've given yourself for us to have. You did it so we can live life more abundantly and to have hope and joy in you, God. Help us to walk in it, to trust in you like never before, and to tell others in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Well, uh, we're going to talk today about a lot of things. It's going to be pretty quick, um, and uh, I'm, we're going to talk about Jesus and and if you would like to know more about the prophecies and Jesus and how they were fulfilled, remember over the Christmas time in December, I went over a lot of prophecies and who Jesus is. Please go back and look at those uh, during the December episodes. And so today, please fasten your truth belts as we talk about the fact of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And we say this because Jesus' life, ministry, crucifixion, and even resurrection are actually among the most corroborated facts in ancient history. The world even reckoned our years to A.D., Anno Domini, based on the year believed to be Jesus' birth. So that means something really rocked the whole world, right? All the ancient prophecies and historical and archaeological facts, eyewitness testimony corroborate that Jesus' life created a fault line in history that forever changed the world. With just 11 guys in a little city under direct Roman rule, it's so hard to believe, friends, no humans could ever orchestrate such a seismic shift. In fact, uh, Jesus' apostles and first century followers suffered relentless persecution from the Jews and the Romans, and even submitted to horrific deaths, such as crucifixion, beheading, death by lions, impaled and burned as Nero's human torches, blah, flayed, and so on. They did this rather than revoke their confession that Jesus had risen from the dead. That's all they had to do, which leads to the often asked question, who would die for something they knew was a lie, particularly if there was no earthly benefit, right? You're dead. How's there a benefit? And in spite of all the persecution, the truth could not be contained. It spread further and further throughout the Roman Empire. And this alone is on incontrovertible proofs, incontrovertible, it's <laughs> a long word, proofs of the life, death, or resurrection of Jesus at a time when few permanent records were readily generated. So while Roman historical confrontation with the growing Christian movement has left copious records. We know all about that. There's lots of records about this. 
Uh, one extra biblical document that testifies to the essential facts of Jesus' life comes from the first century Jewish historian, you might have heard of him, Josephus Flavus. And so we know that in Rome in the year 93, Josephus published his lengthy history of the Jews while discussing the periods in which the Jews in Judea were governed by the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. And Josephus included the following account. Here's what Josephus said. He wasn't supposedly even a Christian. Uh, about this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He went over many Jews and many Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when upon the accusation of principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day uh, restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, he still to this day has not disappeared. And so we see this record, whatever controversy is generated, testified in the first century to the early and widespread knowledge of Jesus's life and mystery. We didn't just come up with this. And so those who dismiss Jesus outright have no logical basis to do so, right? So Jesus is an incontrovertible fact of history. Every archaeological find affirms him. The witness testimony was written down within a few decades of the events while potential refuting witnesses were still alive. Even the Jews in Israel today, who largely reject him as their Messiah, openly acknowledge the essential facts of his life. Hundreds of specific prophecies in the Old Testament became recorded as fulfilled events in the New Testament about Jesus and the Messiah. And then people dismiss the testimony of the prophecy when no other faith has attempted to predict the future in such detail. It's really irrational to dismiss that prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. So there exists manifold more ancient manuscript evidence in support of the life of Jesus than for any other ancient history or event. Friends, there's so much evidence for Jesus's ministry, life and death and resurrection that there really is no rational grounds for rejecting these facts. And these facts testified to God's loving gift and to our responsibility to respond. Remember Jesus said in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, and his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And remember John eighteen thirty seven. He said, to this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. And so those who do not want the truth reject the truth. They try to refute it. They try to dispel it. They try to uh, discredit it. But there's no facts on their side to help them. They just spread rumors, and they overthrow people who would believe because they believe the rumors. And so we have to help people to see the truth. It's really incontrovertible. So anyone who's interested in learning more details concerning the evidence for uh, Jesus, 
I recommend two sources. You may have heard of them. Uh, For yourself, and particularly for anyone who's a skeptic in your life, I recommend you watch The Case for Christ movie. It's really good. If you haven't seen it or if you have, see it again and refresh your memory on how strong the evidence is. It's based on Lee Strobel's great book of the same name, and it outlines his own research as a journalist and a skeptic trying to disprove the claims about Jesus. (laughs) And he discovered it was all true, right? So the book is good, too, but it's a great movie to watch and to share around Easter. And then for the real intellect who wants to uh, irrefutable logic, evidence, archaeology, history, and so on, I recommend the book More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell's book's been around for a while, and it's been changing people's minds, anyone who has any sincerity in their search. And it also includes recent evidence. So if you just challenge people to consider the facts, then you have been faithful to plant a seed. And whether it sprouts immediately over the course of time or even never, we still need to be faithful to do it. And believe me, the evidence is on our side. We need to stand up and be strong and have faith. So let's get out there, right? Um, so now let's look at what the Bible reveals about the facts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. All right. So the Apostle John was the last to write his gospel, and it doesn't go over the same ground as the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Instead, it seems to reflect after so many decades of knowing Jesus and all the revelations from the Holy Spirit, which have deepened his understanding. And the book of John is traditionally dated about 90 AD um, uh, and likely written at a ripe old age Uh, from his home base at Ephesus after having to leave Jerusalem in 70 AD. So John's gospel account beautifully describes who Jesus was. If we begin at John 1-1, let's consider how he describes him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, to those who believe on his name. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so from here and throughout John's account, we learn plainly that Jesus is God come into the world to redeem it from sin. He is God. He is one with God. He made the world, and he will pay for the sins of the world, who can re- whoever can receive his gift by faith alone. Now, when we get into controversies with skeptics, they often disregard the Gospels completely and try to argue that the account was adulterated much later and that these myths emerged by their continued translation uh, by corrupt humans. Oh, we can't trust humans, uh, except for the things they want to believe in. Um, But we won't address the fallacy and lack of evidence for these claims right now. It's too much. Maybe we'll get into it another time. But uh, let's look at what the Bible itself says concerning these very claims about who Jesus was and what he did. Interestingly, as we just discussed, the Apostle John was the only one not to be killed for his faith, although they tried really hard. So he lived to be a very old man. And interestingly, these same rumors about Jesus arose in his lifetime while he was still a living witness for Jesus. They doubted him 
And there he was. He was right there. And he's like, I saw him. I saw Jesus. I saw all this stuff. And they're trying to tell lies about the witness of Jesus. That's Satan for you, right? He even addresses this problem, which in that form was called Gnosticism uh, back then, when he warned in 1 John. That's the letter in 1 John. And we see in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So he was dealing with it even then. Uh, We know that Satan was tricked into fulfilling prophecy and killing Jesus, as Paul described in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery— the hidden wisdom of God, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There you have it right there. Uh, God tricked Satan into doing it. Uh, Didn't know it was going to be the end of him, right? So after that, after he got tricked into crucifying Jesus and he rose from the dead, Satan had to kick in with plan B, which was to discredit the power and the facts of Jesus's ministry, life, death, and resurrection. So in response, the apostle John reminds the church of the facts regarding his own witness testimony of these things concerning Jesus. And we see this in 1 John verse 1. Listen to how he begins it. You already hear he is trying to counter these rumors and lies. So we see verse 1, 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full." So you see, he completely refuted it. He's reminding them, we heard him, we touched him, we lived with this guy, we know exactly what we're talking about. It's very hard to refute a living witness, and he reminds them, right? Then he writes in Second John to warn about the lies that were being told to corrupt the truth about Jesus and to warn the church not to entertain those liars, which were already out in the world. So we see in Second John 2, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things that we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So even the disciples, uh, in the disciples' day, they had to battle the lies against what they themselves had witnessed and testified to, as well as many other witnesses that are not necessarily recorded. Um, Paul, who had become close with the apostles and the church in Jerusalem, described the authenticity of the testimony, apparently also needing to refute challenges. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered unto you 
uh, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, after he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then at last, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. All right. So we see the further veracity of the Gospels, particularly in Luke's account, who was not an eyewitness of Jesus's life, but a companion of Paul and traveled with him. So it's clear that he endeavored to make an accurate written account of the Gentile audience. Luke likely interviewed witnesses while he awaited Paul's trial, both in Jerusalem and then later for two years in Caesarea. At that time, he had access to all the living witnesses uh, just in 60 AD, about 10 years before the fall of Jerusalem. It's clear from the detailed testimony that he gives um, that is not included in the other Gospels that he talked with many witnesses, including those of Jesus' own family and close inner circle, perhaps even Jesus' mother, who may have been in her late 70s, early 80s, and could have provided the great detail in her encounter with the angel, as well as Elizabeth's experiences. Remember, she went and lived with her cousin Elizabeth for three months until she gave birth. And there's that beautiful scene when uh, when Jesus' mother Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, and they both break out into this prophetic song, right? And so those are detailed. Who else could give those details but someone who was there? So we see that in Luke, and likely he interviewed uh, his mother. So Luke's admired today uh, by other historians, secular historians, for his great historical detail. Um, they, they, If they want to know where something is, they look in Luke's account and then try to dig there, right? And um, that adds a reliable context to the gospel's framework. He appeared to undertake the account with great deliberateness and perhaps intended it for a high Roman official who had come to faith. So let's take a look. Here's how Luke's account begins. Luke 1.1. Inasmuch as many have taken into hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you are instructed. All right? So he goes through the account, and it's very thorough in the dates and the people, the times, the timing of things. And uh, so it's a very detailed account. And so, uh, therefore, we must understand how substantial the evidence is to verify every detail of Jesus' ministry. We can trust that the details that these details testify to his life, death, and resurrection in exactly the way that they happened and that they were written to happen. In fact, these details found in Luke help corroborate the other gospels, so you really have no room to doubt any of them. And uh, when we celebrate Jesus, we must remember with reverence these weighty events as reflecting God's love and costly gift of eternal life through his son. So anyway, let's recall what Luke detailed concerning the Passover week. That's this week. 
Uh, First, we note Jesus' triumphal entry according to the prophecy in Zechariah 9. So let's look at Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so both got all the Gospels take pains to point out the prophecies that are being fulfilled whenever an event happens in their account um, that Jesus is fulfilling. And so if we look at that moment when he comes into, the, into Jerusalem, that's actually what G- Christians today call Palm Sunday. We just had Palm Sunday, right? And it occurred actually five days before Jesus was killed on Passover. This actually fulfills God's Passover directive to bring the lamb into the house five days before the Passover. It's supposed to live among the family and, uh, in a sense, be be inspected by it, but also to, to be part of the family, become part of the family before they had to sacrifice it. So we see that's what God did with Jesus, bringing him into Jerusalem to be inspected and to uh, be part of the the family in Jerusalem before he was sacrificed. And so we see the Zechariah prophecy fulfilled in Luke, um, but when it happens, Jesus is actually not rejoicing the way the crowd is. This curious crowd had largely come because Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead not long before, and his fame spread quickly on the eve of Passover. Oh, he's going to be here, right? They all heard that he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. It was a big miracle. It really impressed everybody. Um, there were also many, uh, based on this, who wanted to make him king now. And so as we see in Luke 19, here's the account beginning at 35. They brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw on their own clothes on him, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. We also know they spread palms and all kinds of other things that they had cut down. Verse 37, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. As some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teach or rebuke your disciples. So when they said this, this is the call of the Messiah. I believe that's in Psalm 118, the Messianic Psalm about the arrival of the king. Um, And so this was recognized as a call, a, a recognition that he was the Messiah. And of course, the Pharisees did not want him to be the Messiah. He said, rebuke your disciples. Verse 40, but he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Verse 41, now as he drew near the city, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So that's pretty sad. So he knew what was coming ahead. And after entering Jerusalem, we find that Jesus submitted to the testing by the Pharisees for the next five days, but they could not take a hold of his words, it records, uh, in order to accuse him. Uh, 
and so that's when Judas decided to betray him for money and agreed to lead them to him. Now, Jesus enjoys the Passover supper with his disciples and reveals how he is the new covenant that replaces the law of sacrifice and that he is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And so that Passover night, he is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and taken to a secret trial, then sent to Pilate early for crucifixion and judgment or judgment and crucifixion. Since God ordained Jewish feasts to begin at sundown, this is interesting. The end, uh, so Jewish feasts begin at sundown on one day and then end the next day at sundown. So even though he celebrated Passover overnight, which is what the directive is, uh, it was still the day of Passover when Jesus ended up being crucified. So then Jesus is crucified for the sins of the world. And I urge you to read the whole account yourself this weekend. And then he is the Passover lamb that opens not his mouth as he fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 53. If you're Jewish, I urge you to read through Isaiah 53. It's an exact prophecy of what Jesus endured. And so we see beginning at verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief when he made his soul an offering for sin. And he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And he bore the sin of many. He poured out his soul unto death. And so that leads us to the triumphant day, that great triumph where he destroyed the works of the devil and that through his death, he was able to deliver them through who fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so I urge you, look at the Luke 24, all the resurrection accounts and find this triumphal moment when he rises again and he fulfills all the promises. And uh, I just ask you, remember in John 17, 3, he says that this is eternal life, that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ who he has sent. Remember, you must know him. Be sure you know him, that you're going to a Bible teaching church that teaches the whole counsel of God, that you yourself study to find yourself approved and ready to speak the truth. And if you haven't received Jesus, this is no better time than right now that you can come into his care. And until next time, happy Easter. He is risen and God bless you all. Join Wendy Scott every Saturday at 3 p.m. on K-Praise for another episode of Season Watch. Previous episodes can be found through the K-Praise podcast platform, where you can also access Wendy's other platforms and contact links. Please email Wendy with show comments, questions, or suggestions at wscott at mywordsforhim.com or visit her website at mywordsforhim.com for additional resources. Watch other teachings on her Rumble channel. 
Wendy's Words for Him. Her fiction novel, The Lost, A Story of Christmas, can be found on Amazon. Until next week, watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. 